We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, this is Victoria Lupashku, one of the hosts for the New Books Network. And today we are here with Dr. Alba Griffin, Associate Lecturer at Newcastle University in Latin American Studies. Hello, Dr. Griffin, and welcome to our channel. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, amazing, I should say, uh, Reading the Walls of Bogota, Graffiti, Street Art, and the Urban Imaginary of Violence, published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 2023. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Oh, me too. Absolutely. And, you know, just to to kick it off, I wanted to, um, you know, just get to know your work better and you know, because I'm I'm very interested in graffiti as well, and I wanted to know like what attracted you to this project. You know, how you you came to it, and you know what got you interested um, in graffiti as a broad category and depictions of violence in an urban setting, uh, to be more specific. Mm, thank you, Victoria. Yeah, it's um it's an interesting one because graffiti wasn't actually my primary interest academically. Um, I'd always been interested in it. You know, just just a, on a sort of personal level um but i came to it through more of a sort of area studies and languages focus i'd done um uh, my undergraduate degree in french and spanish but really to be honest i was always more interested in the cultural side of learning languages and what you learn from from different cultural contexts over for example you know the grammar and the linguistics Although I won't tell that to my um, my Spanish students at university. No, of course. <laughs> I won't reveal that, that yeah. truth. <laughs> but, um, but after my undergrad, I went for a master's in Latin American interdisciplinary studies at Newcastle, which was a really interesting taught program and gave me an insight into a range of different cultural and political contexts. And then I followed a PhD in Latin American studies again at Newcastle. And what really drove my interest really was the relationship between violence and popular culture. So thinking about how art and culture engaged with themes of violence, how it tried to represent the realities of violence, what constraints there were, and Colombia quickly became the area I thought would be best to focus on um, because I was fascinated by the idea that, pe- that, that the conflict, the political conflict, but also co- conflicts around drug trade and um, different forms of inequality were ongoing. And so as opposed to other Latin American countries where a lot of the things we were learning about or studying were about past violences. I thought, how do people continue to live with this idea that there is an ongoing armed conflict in the country? And I wasn't necessarily thinking about the people who were directly affected, the sort of victims and perpetrators, because I think a lot has been done on on their perspectives, but how does it affect society more broadly? Um, And 
so given that that kind of interest in the social impact of violence and in the sort of everyday experience of it, graffiti became absolutely the cultural form to look at. And I realised that very quickly after visiting Bogota because it is absolutely everywhere. You've got such a huge array of graffiti and street art and such diverse expressions. And I think that's really interesting because... As opposed to an art gallery exhibition or a film or a book, which, well, you know, there are great examples of very complex insights into violence and how it's lived and experienced. With graffiti, you really can't avoid it. It absolutely is in your face as you're walking down the street. So that, again, tied into this idea of of how, how do people perceive that within the context of everyday life? And the more I the more I look at the graffiti, the more I love it. I didn't necessarily think that I would continue after my PhD, either, but but I can't get away from it, to be honest. <laughs> That's, I mean, yeah, I think it has um, it has a power on its on its own, right? To to keep you uh, very interested and to like the more you study them and you know the more you look at it, the more you kind of want to know more or you find new ways to analyze it, right? The more you see it in everyday life as well, you, you just and that happened to people I was talking to as well who maybe hadn't thought about the graffiti, but then I would, you know, maybe run into them later, or or it was people I was living with, and they were like, "Oh, I saw this graffiti, and oh, you've made me think about this, and now I look at the walls, and now I try to see graffiti where I go," and I'm like, "Yes, that's exactly how it happens." <laughs> that's so nice. That's really yeah. Um, yeah, and we totally see, um, you know, the the kind of interest and the way it develops, right, through through the book and through through the chapters, right, the four chapters that are accompanied by the introduction and the conclusions, and um, you know, I think the questions there um, are very, uh, they, of course, they're very important questions, but they do um, uh, connect to visual arts and their capacity of engaging with and depicting violence. Um, and specifically the type of violence that you you mentioned that you know it's it's in the everyday and um i think you know we we could be more specific and to say that the book investigates quote what it feels like to live in a society imbued with the idea of violence what kinds of violence people are talking about when they say that uh, colombia is a violent country and what meanings are given to violence and whom they implicate end of quote so the role of aesthetics is pivotal in the book where art and culture are key sites where uh, through which violence is negotiated because they draw on the creativity of the collective imagination. And I took that quote from page 10. And, you know, here I just wanted to invite you to tell us more about the political, the cultural and social status of graffiti in Colombia and about the way in which you theorize the pervasiveness of different forms of violence in, in Bogota specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of graffiti in Colombia, I think I think Latin American graffiti is a really interesting context in general. And I think underrepresented in broader discussions around graffiti and street art globally. So I'm quite keen to kind of point out the specificities of, of that of that context, um, one of which I think is diversity and as I said in Bogota graffiti is absolutely everywhere but that relates to large-scale murals um, that are you know funded by the state sometimes or with private money but really impactful as kind of a, a form of public art 
it relates to smaller scale murals produced by victims or, or social movements working in collaboration with artists or where artists are part of their group anyway. Um, slogans and writing on the walls. I haven't found a good kind of catch-all term, but uh, very kind of political graffiti, either that relates to a specific kind of political group um, or the slogans that are repeated during marches. So you can sort of trace the protests through the city by looking at what is written on the walls, which is great. Um, you've got graffiti related to football fan groups, often associated with hooliganism. But you know, I think that's it's important to note that that's not always the case. Um, as well as hip hop style graffiti writing and throw ups and pieces, and street art generally with posters and paste ups and stencil work. So what what I really like is that it kind of comes together in the city and in that sense, reflects the voices of very different social groups. There's not one type of graffiti and graffiti artists in the city. So when you're thinking about where they're coming from and who's producing them, you're already engaging with diverse voices within the city. And I think, again, in the Latin American context, it's important then to think about the trajectory of this kind of urban art and visual expression with the, you know, the impact of muralism in the region has been key, but also that sense of kind of political mobilisation and student mobilisation, um, because graffiti is integral as a part of, of kind of political expression within those often more contestatory spaces and more controversial kind of protest um, movements. So in that sense, yeah, I think the kind of the cultural status of graffiti is really important and important to think about it within its its you know geographic location. Politically, graffiti in Bogota especially is associated with a certain amount of leniency. Um, so there was a graffiti law or a graffiti a, a decree that was passed in 2013 and then a follow-up one in 2015 that really recognizes graffiti as a form of cultural expression and one which the government commits to supporting, the local government this is, um, and so they they specifically mention spaces where it's legal to do graffiti, right, so free spaces, so it's things like the walls underneath bridges and that sort of thing. Not to say that you can paint anywhere, but it does provide spaces for people to practice and to produce their art, and, and it it commits to kind of providing some funding and development opportunities. They have mesas de graffiti, which are kind of meeting spaces, regular meeting spaces between graffiti artists and the local government to you know, pr- find out what opportunities are available, but also to discuss problems. And I think one of the key things in the law is that it, it specifies what almost kind of what punishment can be meted to, out to people doing graffiti illegally. And it says that, you know, there shouldn't be any violence enacted against graffiti artists. The police are limited in what they are telling people they can or can't do and what the punishment can be. And that's really important. I'll talk about this a bit later as well in terms of how that mediates the relationship between the police and graffiti artists, because that is one that is quite entrenched in violence. So kind of on paper, that is quite I think, quite a positive development. And I think it has a wider social impact because what this law does 
is it moves the discussion away from whether graffiti is vandalism or art, whether it's legal or illegal, you know, all of that, I think, is kind of put to one side because people have almost been told, yeah, yeah, no, it is, it's a legitimate form of cultural expression. The law says so. So then they start thinking about, oh, well, so what, what do I like? What don't I like? Why are people doing it? Who's doing it? And I think they just, there's, there's a general sort of idea of paying more attention to what is on the walls and accepting that people have the right to express themselves. And it doesn't mean that everyone likes it, but it means that there's that at least symbolic recognition that people have the right to self-expression. And I really found that people were, as I said, people were familiar with graffiti, people were interested in it, even if they hadn't kind of, even if they don't engage with it all the time, they they had more to say about it than I expected, which was great. <laughs> That's fantastic. And I was very surprised in many ways. I mean, given the you know, the whole conversation about graffiti in in different parts of the world. And, you know, I mean, if we think about New York and, you know, the 80s and the 90s, um, and then, you know, to read that, oh, there is a decree that makes it legal, right, at least on paper, um, and that there is this symbolic recognition of graffiti as a as a form of art. Um, I thought it opened up this, this new space, right, of expression and um, kind of debate as well. Um, absolutely yeah but then that does link to the second part of your question about the pervasiveness of violence because actually the law changed direction it was already being written or the decree was already kind of being prepared by the local government um but and I opened the book with with this story with them in 2013 is that right? Yes, 2013. I'm not very good with dates. Diego Felipe Becerra was a teenager who was killed by the police when he was doing graffiti. And that really shifted the narrative surrounding graffiti and the direction the law took away from criminalizing it and more to and kind of trying to control it in that way and more towards confirming that it was that people had a right to do it, but still kind of defining the conditions under which it was acceptable. Um, so just to think about this kind of idea of violence, I think Diego Felipe Becerra's story is really interesting. It's very heartbreaking, but it draws into play some of these different forms of violence that are embedded in everyday life. Um, so it's perhaps worth thinking about that now. Um, the case itself revolved around, as I said, the police shot Diego Felipe and he died from his wounds. He had just been hanging out doing graffiti um, with his friends, you know, kids in the north of the city. But what the police did after that was plant a gun at the scene of the crime and then say, fabricated this story that Diego Felipe and his friends had been robbing a bus. And so they hired false witnesses even, and they really pushed this story that he was in the wrong, right? He was a criminal and that kind of justified the police's actions. So there's that element of kind of direct violence, you know, state victimization of civilians and his death, but also the narrative around it and how they tried to cover it up and and kind of squash the case in sort of, you know, corruption and impunity. But the other thing I find fascinating about this story is the way in which Diego Felipe's parents and his friends managed to shift the representation of what had happened. So initially, the media 
um, kind of followed the police's narrative and kind of presented him as a vandal and um, and kind of told that side of the story. But Gustavo and Liliana, his parents, kind of responded with, well, no, he wasn't a thief, right? He's from a middle-class family. He was in a middle-class area of the city. He didn't need to rob a bus. Um, and they really pushed back against it. And, you know, there were, there were witnesses. His friends were witnesses to what had happened. But in these sorts of cases, you know, young people are not necessarily heard in the same way as the police have heard. And it has taken years and the family and friends have been intimidated there's been threats made against them but they managed to draw on their connections with the media with international media as well and the resources they had to pursue the case in court and it has now been kind of by law um you know in the in the in the uh, courts agreed that it was a case of an urban false positive and that it was a state committed crime that they then tried to cover up. And so to a certain extent, you know, they've been brought to justice. But all of that really relied on another form of violence, which is this idea that you can you can mediate and represent violence in such a way that obscures the realities of what's happening and that makes people believe that, you know, some people not necessarily deserve, but, you know, are more subject, are kind of more likely to be subjected to violence than others, and that's kind of normalised. So I think that's what's in that kind of shows this idea of pervasiveness of violence in that it is part of everyday life, but in very different ways. And it's only in specific contexts where you can start to draw out those connections between them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, I was just thinking, um, right, about this this idea of like some people, like in the social imaginary, and I, I'm going to ask this about the social imaginary in, in a few minutes. But, um, you know, I was just thinking how this um, like normalization of violence and um, violent perceptions of, of some groups of people or, you know, some groups of events or, you know, it's, it's so, um, yeah, pervasive that... Yeah, it just needs a whole, like, maybe another um, interview or another book, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, and, you know, I, I just wanted to follow up a little bit with, um, because, you know, my enthusiasm towards the, the decree, you know, it was also followed by a little bit of a worry because, right, once you quote unquote, legalize something, then, you know, it doesn't get as much uh, attention or it can become more violent just because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's out there. But, um, and I think, right, you, you mentioned this, uh, this idea that just because it's symbolically recognized, it didn't mean that you could do graffiti everywhere or, you know, all types of graffiti are uh, recognized as such, right? Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll stop with my musing and I'll just ask you about the methodological approaches. Um, I was very curious about them because you mentioned that they allowed, um, and that's a quote, people to articulate their vernacular theories of violence, end of quote. And I was very interested in this idea of vernacular theories of violence. And I wanted to um, to, to ask you to talk a bit about that type of methodology and the interactions it facilitated. Yeah, I am. Um, so I kind of was really interested, as I said, in how people live with this idea of violence and what kind of meanings they drew from what they saw around them. And I love this idea of vernacular theory. 
and it just kind of deconstructs the hierarchy of <laughs> university education and higher education um, because it, it says that, you know, everyone everyone's kind of critiquing and engaging with the world around them, yes, to different extents and in different ways and at different times, but but everyone has the the ability to deconstruct and, and kind of form their own opinions and theories and understandings about what 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 is happening and so that's what I kind of used to try and understand this this notion of everyday violence and what people really meant by it and it overlaps with graffiti and street art of course um so the way I approached that methodologically was very open <laughs> to mixed methods and seeing what I could get from being there. I spent nine months in Bogota doing a sort of urban ethnography and that involved really trying to to pay attention to the little signs of violence that are part of everyday life, be it news stories in the media, rumours or advice that I was getting a lot about how to move around the city um, social media discussions of things that had been happening. I should mention at the time, Colombia was going through the peace process. There was discussions underway. I left before they actually signed the peace deal. But so so the, the, the memories and the discussions around armed conflict and peace were, were very heightened. But as were, you know, discussions around street crime and the local mayoral elections and what people were going to do about insecurity and stuff like that. So they really overlapped. So it's kind of a lot of paying attention to that and really exploring different areas of the city to get a sense of the visual landscape and how it reflected different forms of violence, but also different kinds of graffiti and what was going on in different areas of the city. And with graffiti and street art, it was kind of equally open um, because I... I wanted to talk to artists and to people who did very different kinds of graffiti. So I did a lot of in-depth interviews with them, um, but also trying to just sort of hang out in spaces where graffiti was a key part of it. So exhibitions, um, talks about graffiti, uh, spaces where people were painting and getting a sense of what it felt like to do to do graffiti. And, and part of that was really interesting because I got to see some of the interactions between graffiti artists and members of the public and also got artists to kind of show me around their neighbourhood or talk to me about uh, street art that wasn't necessarily what they had produced, but what they thought was great, what they thought, what they didn't like, you know, what areas they liked as well. So it was a, a kind of trying to get in-depth into, into how they experienced graffiti very broadly, not just kind of how, how they did very specific murals. Amazing. And the, yeah, yeah, it was really fun. <laughs> and the other part of it was um, was really a reception study of graffiti and street art because I was interested in, as I said, how people kind of perceived it and perceived its role in society. And so I did focus groups at different universities around the city with students, but I should say students of all ages because some were kind of evening classes, some were more um, traditional sort of young undergrads. Um, and... They, they were great. They were absolutely great. And I basically just had to sit and listen as people just kind of led the conversation and jumped from topic to topic. It was brilliant. And the other thing I really loved was doing interviews in the street and trying to kind of just capture some of that immediate public opinion just with, with little snapshots of interviews. Um, 
I soon realized that you needed to have graffiti next to you <laughs> for people to really know what you're talking about and be able to kind of expand a little bit on it. So I'd kind of stand next to a mural, but where there were different kinds of graffiti and they would interpret it and talk to me about it. So um, that was really fun as well. That's amazing. And it just gives you so much material to work with. Um, so, you know, I was thinking like maybe the the post, right? So going back to uh to to writing and doing the debriefing right from the field and the field notes i thought like oh my god it must have been quite a challenge right to to deal with all so, of much. All of yes. <laughs> so much to wade through i think it took me most of my phd to actually realize what it was i was writing about <laughs> but, yeah yeah but i mean that's also the the exciting part from mixed methods right that they allow exactly <laughs> Um, I'll jump into um, a question on chapter one uh, next and um, chapter one it's entitled conceptualizing violence the imaginary and graffiti and street art in Bogota and it does exactly what it says um, but with a lot of elegance and precision so my question here is really um, about the relationship between violence, the imaginary and street art and the ways in which they, it becomes visible in different forms and also at different times. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Yes, it's a, to frame it as if it's a simple question, but it's a very complex one. Um, I think... I think it's worth starting with the imaginary because that really ties into this question of of how people, you know, interpret the space around them and what are the what are the things we start to take for granted and what do how can we kind of push back a little bit against some of those um norms. So basically I kind of found that what I was interested in, as I said, was kind of listening to other people, not really interpreting the graffiti myself. Um, so there's perhaps less visual analysis than people might expect, but I was really interested in this idea of how people are, as I said, kind of constructing their own theories of what images tell us and the importance of graffiti and street art. And the imaginary became a really useful theoretical framework, I found, um, because it tries to capture the ways in which people experience, interpret and respond to the world around them, how imaginaries sort of give shape to our collective experience and then guide our interactions, our ways of understanding the world, our behaviours within it. And of course, power dynamics are completely embedded within them. So in the theory, imaginaries are kind of structuring, right? They they organise society because they push us into certain modes of behaviour and certain relationships. But there's also the idea that within imaginaries, because we're all collectively constructing them, we're all participating in our imaginaries, then you can push back against normative ways of seeing. You can try and make people think differently and I think street art and graffiti is somewhere where you really see this in action. People just trying to open a little crack within our taken for granted assumptions, including the prejudices and the stereotypes and all that sort of thing, and just try and make us think slightly differently about something. They just kind of raise a little question. Um, and partly through, you know, even basically the use of public space, right? You're not supposed to paint on the walls or write on the walls. So what happens when you do? People go, oh, okay. <laughs> Someone's decided that they're playing with that space. They're going to appropriate it and participate in what the what the city looks like. 
but also historically it's sort of, of course been associated with you know social groups who are more powerless so they turn to the walls because they have less access to more dominant forms of communication media um so it's it's kind of a way in which we can understand how people resist some of those dominant and hegemonic imaginaries um, that reproduce inequality. I draw on Gramsci in my book to think about not just how the subaltern, by which he means the powerless in very in different ways, become complicit in structures that reproduce inequality and violence and why you know the kind of re- revolutionary moment doesn't necessarily happen but also the potential of things like popular culture to allow people to reframe the world according to their own understandings of it. So I do think there's something um, about that in graffiti, even though, as I say in the book, it's, you know, it's, it's not just the powerless who are painting the streets at the moment, right? We've got all this mixture of funded work and people who have gone to university or high-end artists who are doing it. We, you know, we understand that in the contemporary status of graffiti, it's very mixed about who's using the walls of the city. Um, but I do think it kind of reminds us that there are cultural and artistic spaces that can be spaces of possibility where we can question what is taken for granted right, and articulate alternative theories. And this is kind of quite theoretical, <laughs> but um, but it's kind of, I found, I found that I really wanted to get all of that into a theory chapter. So then when the case studies, I wasn't trying to constantly do that explaining. I wanted to set out my approach and then <laughs> dive into the specifics. Sorry. I was just going to say, in terms of, like, in terms of violence as well, the way that plays into it, that vi- you really see the importance of it when you come to think about violence, right? Because it matters how victims are represented politically, and it matters to how they, how certain victims are treated by others in society. And you know, around the world, we see this with the sort of migrants and migrant crises, right? How do how how are they represented, and how does that often end up? dehumanizing certain people or shaping the political responses to it um and as i said with graffiti and street art um there's such an interesting interplay between art and vandalism that with returning to the idea of diego felipe the way that he was represented is crucial to how that case um continued and how they eventually found some measure of justice because the police used representation right they used this idea of young men being associated with criminality they provided photos in the press where he was unsmiling and very serious and looked kind of aggressive but you know it's an id photo that was an id photo so of course you're not supposed to smile in them and gustavo and liliana did the opposite they provided photos of him from childhood where he's smiling and happy to kind of humanize him and at the bridge where he was shot, they've taken it over and painted commemorations. A lot of graffiti artists have come together to pay homage to him and to kind of denounce it, denounce the um, the police abuse. But they also use it to kind of remember him as a very happy, joyful, playful and loving young man. So that that question of representation becomes really important and has a real material impact. So it's a very complex interplay between all these different things. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's quite, yeah, it's so, 
um, yeah, it's just like a network of, of, of implications and, you know, theories. And I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> and, um, you know, when, when I interjected a few minutes ago, I just wanted to say that uh, it worked very, very well, this idea of putting the, the theory in, in, in the first chapter and setting the, the stage for the case studies. Um, it actually clarified a lot uh, of things. And, you know, in my opinion, I think it was a brilliant move <laughs> to do. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think I spent most of my time trying to work on that chapter. It was the hardest one I found to write. I believe you, but again, the the work that came out was, uh, I think it's it's paying off because it's very very nicely done. <laughs> um, and also just the the, the explanations that um, you know make so much sense um, in the context provided by the introduction and you know the 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 story that that opens the opens the book um and you know it just it's so uh, seamless that we get to chapter two that you know all of a sudden you realize like oh you know i read like 40 pages or 60 pages this is nice <laughs> um and you know that's not to say um um, that the 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 subject of violence or you know the stories are um, you know lighthearted because they're not and as you mentioned they're heartbreaking and it's um, you know it's it's a heavy um, topic to to engage with um, but you know I was praising just the the smoothness of writing and the effort you put in. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and you know, to with with chapter two, right? We we get to see the first uh, case study, and um, you know, it's entitled "The Everydayness of Political Violence: Kaya Twenty Six and the Struggle for Memory." And um, I have a few questions here, but I'll just limit myself to uh, the following, uh, namely, how does the space stand out uh, from other sites? Um, and what kind of memory does it hold? And, you know, um, how does it negotiate its existence in an environment saturated with political violence? Mm. Uh, yeah, Kaya 26 or, or Kaya 26 is, I think, a really interesting one, partly because I suppose what, what I found is that it condenses a lot of broader discussions and a lot of, of the different dynamics of both graffiti and of violence in the city into one stretch of road, <laughs> which is quite useful, but it also means that it's quite a significant place in and of itself. So this is a big road that runs from the west of the city, kind of from the airport through into the historic centre um, and runs through different neighbourhoods, but really close to the centre of the city, it interacts with institutionalized memory. So there you've got the Centro de Memoria, Paz y Reconciliación, so the Center for Peace, for Memory, Peace and Reconciliation. There's um, the cemetery nearby. There are um, different monuments kind of recording and thinking about the memory of political violence in the country. Um, and another centre for kind of historical memory. So they're, they're really kind of institutionally trying to create this space of engaging with what the conflict is, what it has been. Um, and these centres are doing really important work in recording testimonies or kind of interpreting testimonies of people affected by the conflict. Um, 
they are historic sites themselves. The the, the Centre for Memory, Peace and Reconciliation was actually built on um, an area that where they uncovered mass graves as they were building it, linked to a kind of a big um, violent moment in Colombia's past that I won't go into because I will just be here forever. <laughs> but but so, so kind of already the space has that um, engagement with memory and peace. And as I said, this was a very important moment when I was there because the state was really trying to push forward with the peace process. And what that meant was they were really engaging with narratives of the conflict trying to engage with victims movements and social and political movements that had for many years been trying to highlight you know the realities and lived experiences of violence related to the conflict but had been suppressed by the previous government of Alvaro Uribe Um, and so it was a very key moment and what and graffiti and street are really interesting in this sense because it it allowed Um, it allowed the local government to say, okay, we've got this graffiti law, we're going to provide funding for for murals and commissions. We're also going to link it to our commitment to the peace project and our kind of, you know, the impetus to to kind of, to sell the idea of post-conflict. And I use that in its controversial way in some senses. So what you get is huge murals um, on the ends of sort of gable, the gable ends of buildings um, that reference act, uh, uh, political violence of the past. So the assassination, the massacre actually of, um, sorry, it's called the political genocide of the Union Patriotica, which was a left-wing party formed of demobilised guerrillas in the 80s and 90s. Um, you've got references to the assassination of trade unionists, to displacement. Colombia is one of the countries with most internal displacement perhaps the most internal displacement um and so really strong topics really kind of powerful images as well but as i said mediated by the state at the same time it's an area because of its its huge roads and the walls along the tunnels and bridges are open to graffiti it's a really important area just for anyone to practice their skills and to get a high level of visibility in a very city center location so you've got this whole mix of graffiti on the walls from these huge scale murals to the slogans um throw-ups and pieces of graffiti writing stencils um and at the same time, there's also the National University there, which is the, the public university, well, one of the public universities, but one of the most famous public universities in the city is located along this road. And that is quite well known for its politicisation. There's loads of graffiti on campus. It's an excellent site. But from there and along this road, you also get the signs of protest movements and marches as they've walked along the road into the historic centre of the city. So I love that sense of the overlapping forms of graffiti and street art and the ways in which they kind of respond to different forms of violence as well, some institutional and some really not, some kind of very um, very much about denouncing the state and denouncing the government and even critiquing their approach to the peace process. So very much space of competing discourses. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, 
Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I would say just I kind of I think mm-hmm. I don't want to talk for too long, but <laughs> no, 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 please do. Please. <laughs> I found this area very interesting as well because there's that element of memory, right? And I, in the book, I talk a lot about this memory of political violence and what that means. But I do think that the space is important. Uh, for memories of graffiti as well and one of the um one of the controversies around it that uh that people mentioned so many times to me was um a visit from Justin Bieber <laughs> funnily enough <laughs> who came to the city on tour and decided that he wanted to do some graffiti so what happened was the police actually escorted him, you know, he had private security guards, it made sense, escorted him to Calle 26, this area, and allowed him to do graffiti. But of course, this was maybe two years after the police had killed Diego Felipe Becerra for doing graffiti. And the outrage it caused just because of that juxtaposition and that sense of like, well, who do you, who is important? Whose lives are important? Like, and who has a right to paint the city? And you know, just that, that kind of intertwining of priorities and state violence, I think, um, really brought to the fore the importance of this area for graffiti artists. And, you know, they, they did loads of graffiti afterwards all around in cities around the country. Actually, they did a graffiti sort of marathon challenging the police to, to respond after this emerged. And just there's so many little moments where the right to paint on Gaia Ventises has been reaffirmed and insisted upon multiple times by the graffiti and street art community. As diverse as it is, they come together when their right to the city is threatened. And so that, I think, is is fascinating about this area as well. Absolutely. And, it, yeah, I, I very much i am you know, fascinated by this idea of the right to the city, um, specifically, right, in these contexts. And, you know, when you talk about uh, migrant workers or, you know, um, people that were displaced and, you know, just having, um, right, this this type of, of access to the city or building your own access and expressing, um, you know, your, your, um, your thoughts. Um, it's very... Um, yeah, to, to me, it just sounded extremely interesting and, you know, thought-provoking. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that the the actual content of the graffiti set there is interesting um, and how graffiti artists sort of negotiated what they were doing on the walls because one of the, um, as I kind of said, that this sense of, post-conflict and moving towards peace and kind of recognizing the political violence I think was very strong in this area but that's not to say it wasn't controversial and artists were really wary about how the state was perhaps appropriating graffiti and street art and also using it to sell kind of their position yet at the same time it is important to talk about peace so if you get the opportunity to kind of to to display and to produce a huge large-scale work which links to your own political perspective then you know why wouldn't you take this opportunity to do it so I think that the ambiguity around 
um, those topics, I think, was really interesting. But for but for members of the public and for students who I spoke to, they also really appreciated graffiti and street art that was trying to speak about the kinds of violence that normally isn't represented in, you know, the soap operas on TV or in the media. They they really saw graffiti as a very important and very powerful voice about the truth of violence and the way that it interrupts your daily life, the way that you are forced to confront it. And I think that's very important to recognise because the meaning of graffiti is not just what the graffiti artists want, it's not just what the state wants, it's also how people who are passing by interpret it and incorporate that into their own lives. Right, and how it just, you know, in a very in sometimes innocuous way, it just, you know, sticks to your to you know sticks to you through the day. Like you just pass by, and you know, uh, maybe you're listening to something, or I don't know, and then you see, um, a, you know, a, a tag, or you see, um, you know, um, a, a piece of graffiti, and then it just sticks to you through the day, and kind of, um, I guess, it disciplines your thinking in a certain way that. Um, it wouldn't be there without the art. Um, mm. Yeah, and it encourages you to to find out more in some ways. A lot of the graffiti um, around the conflict in, in Bogota were things like, um, were, were kind of memorials, commemorative portraits of victims. And so you've got this kind of, you've got this face and you've got this name and that encourages you to then, ask well who is that and to maybe research and so there's there's loads of kind of different potential for for how how it can impact people and how how it can kind of affect what they do with what they see on the walls of the city for sure for sure and you know i think we, with that we're kind of moving into the um, you know the the questions for for chapter 3 the spatial po- uh, politics of violence beautification in ciudad bolivar and la perseverancia and um, here we, we talk, we see more um, the raw aesthetics uh, changes um, have um, in their kind of attempt to minimize prejudice against working class neighborhoods and um, in the role in underlining artists' perceptions of censorship, beautification, and also social transformation. And, you know, um, these are two locales. And I think I was just meaning to ask about them, the artists and the politics of beautification. Yeah, sure. Um, yes, yeah, so so I wanted to recognise that graffiti is being produced all over the city. And I think with Bogota gaining more notoriety for graffiti, a lot of the reports of it were focused on places like Calle 26 and the historic centre that I do talk about in the next chapter, but where you get a lot of kind of street art. Um, but what I found really interesting was that smaller scale grassroots level of cultural production and community level organizing. And so I tried to focus on two areas where, where I kind of had most interaction with people doing this kind of graffiti. La Perseverancia is a very small, historically working class neighborhood and right in the center of the city, right? It's, it's really just a kind of a few blocks, but it's, it's, it has a very strong, cultural and symbolic and social identity within the city but it's also a place where people kind of associate it with violence and has historically been associated with violence um and this kind of this then plays into how people negotiate this area they'll they'll 
even tell you don't go through you know these blocks go around the corner to that space or whatever so it is really avoided by people in some senses and then the other area I look at Ciudad Bolivar is a huge a huge area on the outskirts of the city in the metropolitan area of Bogota so really I focus on a few neighborhoods within Ciudad Bolivar Um, But this is an area where the rural to urban migration is much more recent than in La Perseverancia. And there's a real mix of kind of self-built housing and more permanent housing. Um, There's issues around poverty and informality and um, gang crime and criminal networks, as well as sort of corruption with the police. And so it's, it's a very kind of complex area. But because it's in the south of the city, which is notorious in Bogota as being the sort of poor and dangerous area of the city as opposed to the north, um, it just, again, it's kind of vetoed by people. People won't go there, will tell you not to go there. And actually, this is a huge area with a huge number of people living there. So what is actually going on, I think, is a very interesting mix of negotiating the stigma of being associated almost exclusively with crime and poverty, um, but also how you impact the neighbourhood around you. So in the abs- kind of absence of the state or in the kind of failure to really properly be present and deliver on kind of good living conditions, people within these areas are highly motivated to organise themselves and work with each other. And that's what I saw with the um, artists who I spoke to. Um, I'll maybe focus a little bit more on Ciudad Bolívar and Museo Libre. Libre, Libre. This is my Spanish accent uh, being lost. Um, because in in Ciudad Bolívar, in these neighbourhoods, there was a graffiti and street art festival that was set up by local graffiti and street artists. So they were already kind of working a little bit in the neighbourhood and travelling the city and doing their graffiti. But what they really wanted to do was try and re- frame the meaning of what it live what it meant to live in Ciudad Bolivar and how people engage with the area around them. And they use graffiti and street art to do this. So what they did was invite artists from around the city and um, from further afield as well. They've had national and international artists come and they work with neighbours to produce murals on the walls of the neighbourhoods. So it moves away from this idea of, you know, graffiti having to be illicit and provocative and totally independent and more towards graffiti as public art, but with a very um, specific and political intention to destigmatize marginalized areas. Um, And as they've kind of grown, they also evolve from street art to things like community gardening and theatre and circus circus skills and incorporated this this very kind of political idea of learning and knowledge um, using kind of the resources around them rather than a hierarchical sense of of education. And all that said, for all I've kind of mentioned, the politics of it. I didn't actually see much politics in the content of the murals. And at first I found that quite disconcerting because I was thinking, well, there's loads of political murals and very explicit references to violence in the city centre, but there's not here. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) I I don't know what I think about it. Um, But that's why, you know, I was kind of coming back to this idea of listening to people and how they 
understood and negotiated it. So talking to different artists about what they do and why, I was struck by how many references there were to the natural environment, sort of fantastical and magical elements incorporated into the work, and also how lovely and joyful it was to be there as people were painting and neighbours loved it and were talking and would bring food and drink to the artists who are painting. It was just a really nice atmosphere. And I think in the context of somewhere being soy stigmatised, that is such a crucial thing to recognize um you know it's it's a bit of a cliche but of course there is you know life and joy and vitality and stuff in areas that are otherwise um have you know face various issues um but at the same time is it that they didn't want to talk about violence or is it that they weren't able to talk about about violence and I think that's a very difficult question um, some of the artists I spoke to just said things like, you know, why not do something nice and pretty when when we live in a world that is so, <laughs> so, so stressful and so kind of dark and violent at times? You know, at times it's nice to have this counterbalance on the walls. Um, one really interesting perspective came from Toxic Ormano, who's a street artist. He wasn't actually part of this festival, but he talked about painting in different areas of the city and said... Um, you know, it becomes political when you're doing something positive for an area that is otherwise affected by violence. Likewise, sometimes he wants to do something really ugly in places where there was wealth and privilege. And I really like that kind of counterpoint <laughs> attacking the places that were deemed by everyone else nice and safe and lovely. Um, but really, you know, talking to artists, it was clear that there are limitations on what they can and can't say in certain areas, right? So if you're talking too specifically about things like the relationship between the police and the local drug gangs, you know, you either have to be really anonymous or you can't necessarily do it in that area where your your anonymity is not guaranteed. Um, or social cleansing practices, I think, is a really horrible reality of violence where people who are kind of drug addicts or it's affected LGBTQ people, um, people who are kind of deemed undesirable, uh, then kind of, you know, taken away, <laughs> killed, disappeared. And that is something that's happening, you know, has happened around Colombia throughout the conflict. Um, but it's also one of those violences where you see a certain amount of normalization or acceptance of it because it clears that visibility of disorder from the streets. So, you know, you can't you can't necessarily talk about that in the graffiti and street art. Um, and I think what I struggled with this tension of like, well, is it romanticizing? Is it demonizing these places to talk about? violence or to not talk about violence but actually what I wanted to insist on in the book is that these are all realities and that that people know about right they know that there's state absence they know that there aren't opportunities for people from the area they know that there's crime but but then what is the role of art and culture and what do we expect from from things like uh, you know street art festivals and I think the problem is because it's such a visible and um, kind of creative process and one of the few areas where people are really trying to do something good and positive the area they become responsible <laughs> and so as one of the artists um, in Museo Libre said it's like well if someone gets mugged um, against a mural 
like they're saying they're blaming us <laughs> for having like oh they painted this pretty wall but there's still crime it's like well yeah <laughs> they can't solve everything but they can at least try to shift some of the narratives and reframe some of the ways we understand and normalize violence so that is kind of what I tried to 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 insist upon is that we you know we're not blaming <laughs> the people organizing street art festivals for not curing all of society's ills Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's important to mention this um, right in an analysis because um, there's so much hope um, sometimes that comes out of these uh, or positivity that comes out, out of initiatives like this. And, you know, it's it's important to, um, you know, recognize that, yeah, it won't actually cure the problem. And, you know, it's much deeper than that, but at least right one aspect or, you know, one um one nuance uh, can be um, changed or transformed um, through through these um, events or, you know, through all these initiatives that um, change, right, the space to a certain extent. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think um, just talking about aesthetics, um, you know, uh, chapter four, um, the politics of everyday violence, aesthetic hierarchies in La Candelaria, uh, takes us to the historic center of Bogota, and we discover a very interesting element um, that due to extant laws, uh, there's a certain aesthetic uh, hierarchy that reinforced hegemonic notions of taste and art, as as you pointed out on page 26. And, you know, I was just curious about this hierarchy reproducing violence. Like, how, how does it work? How does it manifest? Um, you know. Yeah, yeah. La Candelaria is an interesting one because it is, as I say, it's a historic centre. It's where you've got the um, tourist destinations, the museums, the art galleries, the uh, the government, uh, the presidential palace and government offices, the big church um, and the main square, Plaza Bolivar. And so really interesting architecture, really sort of symbolic and cultural heritage. Um, but what you've also got is loads of graffiti and street art on some of this, some of these really old buildings, really old kind of beautiful architecture. Um, and I personally think that's great. And it's become a tourist attraction in and of itself. The graffiti and street art tour um, was set up in this area and it takes you through the centre of the city and really um, kind of explains and shows that that when there is dialogue with between the artist and say the owner of the building or the people running the establishment, there is that opportunity for collaboration um, that has a positive impact. And so it's become famous for this, you know, space of this center for, for graffiti and street art and how great that is and how many tourists come here and that sort of thing. Um, but you, what I also found fascinating were the ways in which people okay, they were talking about graffiti and street art and they weren't just criminalising all of it, but they were really specific on what they thought was pretty and what they thought was ugly and how that then meant that one was worthless and one was fantastic and should be celebrated. And I think um, like diving into the, the micro detail of why people say that they like or don't like graffiti is where I see the violence of it. So the distinguishing between the good and the bad um, came through when, in some of the quotes that I have 
from focus groups. So I'll just, uh, I've got a few of them here. So some people call them like scrawls or scratches that have no meaning. They said things like, this isn't a protest. It's people who are good for nothing, people who don't have anything to do. Um, for me, that's a scrawl. And they said, Eniero did that, right? Eniero, the best translation I have for it is chav, although I guess that's a very British context uh, translation. But, uh, you know, sort of um, young working class uh, associated, I guess, with street culture and urban culture, you know, the, the, the stereotype of, of that kind of young man. But they add, that is Eniero. Who cares what they think? And another person said, it would be good if these people could realise that they should try and better express their ideas. So I think these are, they're throwaway comments, right? And they are, you know, based on what people like or dislike. Fine, people are allowed to like different things. But I think they're really revealing about how the idea of the good and the bad and the beautiful and the ugly actually is about who they think has a right to express themselves and who they think um, shouldn't be taken seriously and I think that's a kind of social violence and a symbolic violence because it really delimits you know who is important and worth listening to in society and this was experienced by artists right and people who are graffiti artists who might do murals and muralism but might also still tag the city and cover it with their um, with their different forms of graffiti and so, and they knew that, like, they know that they're perceived differently or they know that there's this tension, this hierarchy, and, you know, they negotiate it to different extents. But I think this, yeah, this kind of constant celebration of graffiti and street art is definitely having an impact on the way, on, on other people who are completely dismissed and are not, you know, they're not getting the funding, they're not getting the opportunities to develop their craft. They're not kind of having nice relationships with the local government and particularly with the police. And this is where I see the, the more kind of direct forms of violence coming in as well, because when you have a situation where the, the, the legal status of graffiti is ambiguous, then it comes down to what that individual policeman who catches you doing graffiti thinks of your work. And sometimes that meant people could show them the design or talk about why they were doing it and they totally get away with it and it would be fine. And other times it means that the police are kind of immediately, they see you, they make an assumption about you and what you're doing and they treat you horribly. And so again, if we think back to Diego Felipe's case right he was perceived in a certain way by the police officer yes the police officer might have panicked and shot him but he still saw him as a threat and saw him as a violent risk and so how does that then affect those interactions between people and between with the state and specifically you know with the police um and I just really kind of wanted to draw attention to those inequalities because I think if you're going to say that people have the right to the city and the right to express themselves in the city, you can't then decide some of it is complete nonsense that needs to be painted over or needs to be um, dismissed and is meaningless and worthless because there is always a meaning to it. It might not be a nice meaning, right? I'm not saying that some of the graffiti isn't territorial or aggressive, but you still have to kind of work out what people think and what people 
you know, what people's positions are if you want to counteract them rather than trying to silence them in various ways. So so that's where I kind of see this this tension. And I think this and I think it's true around the world, but I think here and especially in this very city centre location where you've got the visibility of poverty through homelessness on the street and through neighbourhoods that are still kind of, you know, not very well maintained where people don't have a lot of money right next to the areas where you've got a presidential palace and you've got art galleries and you've got private universities that are sort of all gated off and where there's private security guards, that visibility of violence and the ways in which people try to ignore it and not engage with these realities of inequality are are kind of fascinating and, and are just completely inform the way people move through space and engage with the space and then, you know, engage with other people within it. For sure, for sure. And um, I think that just, I was looking at, at my, my I, I mean, I was thinking about my, my question about the conclusions, right, the relationship between aesthetics and violence um, that, that you mentioned on, on page 26. And then I was thinking like, oh, yeah, this this question actually, you know, should have been part of, of, uh, of chapter uh, four and then, you know, kind of ask you about the conclusion, something more, you know, interesting or something, you know, smarter. Uh, but you know, it does bring us the the conclusions do bring us to um, well more recent events. I would the word recent is relative, but um, you know, just um, the, this focus right on the relationship between um, aesthetics, what we see, right, and, and violence. And you know, um, I just wanted to hear a little bit more about it, and um, you know, whether we can characterize this relationship or. Um, you know, how, how your take on it in, in the conclusions? Mm, yeah, no, I think it, it is a good question. It, <laughs> it's, um, I think it's complex. I think it's a very complex relationship. And I think that's what I really tried to do in the conclusion. Um, I, I want to, I did want to draw out the contradictions and the complexities and the tensions around, you know, aesthetics and violence, the different forms of graffiti and street art and their relationship to violence. Um, but I don't want to lose sight of, of the potential that art and culture has and the importance of it and how I, you know, how much I really admire the work of the artists and of anyone who goes out and paints in the street, right? I don't have the I don't have the courage to do it. So I think it's really interesting and fascinating when people do kind of appropriate the city in that way. And one of the um I talk, I talk about recent events, but just one of the quotes from Gustavo, who's actually the, the father of Diego Felipe Becerra, he was talking to me about more recent protests. And he said all of them, the protests and the art and culture around it, the importance of art and culture within these protests, um, showed that aquí está ocurriendo algo. So something is happening here, right? And I think there's that that sense of vitality and that that visibility of of action and of engagement is really powerful. Um, you know, not just to us as academics, but to other people. Right? It's important to know that people either feel the same as you or they're out there, they're doing something, um, and it kind of is part of that collectivity. But just to explain the the more recent protests, I guess. Um, in the conclusion, I talk about the what is now referred to as the estallido social, which translates as a sort of social rupture. Um, and they were basically huge protests in 2019 and 2020, which related to various um, 
various issues in the country, partly to do with the tax reform proposal by the by the state. Um, I should mention that the president at that time was different to the one who um, I was who was in in power when I was there. So Santos was the president when I was there, and he was very focused on pushing forward with the peace process. Not to romanticize him either, but um, that was the vibe. <laughs> and then after him, Duque was elected who was very much back to the um, polarizing discourse of conflict. You know, these are the good guys, these are the bad bad guys, and, you know, not not very open to to negotiations and to a peaceful future, I would say. So under this context, you know, people were really protesting against things like the lack of um, progress with the peace negotiations and the peace process. Um, the you know the implementations were suggested as part of it, um, the killing of social leaders and community leaders since the signing of the peace agreement is is a horrific statistic that I don't have on hand. But you know, huge numbers of people have been pro- have been killed at community level just for trying to protect their communities, trying to put forward um, different proposals around how to protect the environment or move forward with the peace agreement so you know a lot of violence still happening i should say in colombia um it will also do structural inequalities and you know basically it kind of uh, varying demands came together and so that also meant that different people different social groups were coming together and obviously this also intersected with the pandemic and the issues around um the lockdowns and how that was affecting people's livelihoods and the lack of support for people who were living in precarious conditions. Um, so these were really huge protests and there was a lot of police violence within them as well. And that kind of, you know, if anything, that led to more protests rather than, you know, stopping people coming out into the street. But what I'm fascinated about this time as well is that there was there seems to have been a real focus on art and culture, not just as a form of kind of denunciation and slogan writing, but really as a way of bringing people together, sharing and handing out posters, taking over monuments to talk about different aspects of violence and to allow people to express themselves, um, but also public performances, right? So they had music, they had flash mobs, um, there's sort of... Uh, a protest by trans groups who did voguing, vogue performances, and um, and even came up with their own slogan, graffiti slogan of Toloposungo, which is Todos los policías son una gonorrea. So all police are gonorrea. It's a twist on the ACAB, all cops are bastard, but it's a very kind of a unique and, and localised one. So I, just, I, just, I just think that this, it's a really interesting time, so it really kind of brings to the fore um, the potential for art and culture um, as a broader movement. And I should say as well, I guess, that as a kind of as an impact of this, partly because of the role of young people within these protests and also because um, Gustavo Petro, who had been mayor of Bogota, um, was one of the few people kind of coming out in support of the protesters. Um, he was elected as president um last year and is basically the first left-wing president in Colombia so it has really had an impact and alongside him crucially was Francia Marquez who is um a young well yeah kind of 
fairly young Afro-Colombian activist, had been a youth climate activist and is the first um, Afro-Colombian female vice president in the country. So a very interesting mix of sort of local action and different scales of political change in the country. And I guess what I think, how I think that relates to aesthetics and violence is really about really thinking about the relationship between aesthetics and violence from multiple perspectives um, and in nuanced ways, ways that, as we have said, recognise the hope but also the realities of violence and the, the limits of what art and culture can do and what graffiti and street art can do, um, thinking about not just what is depicted but where is it placed, right? Who made it? How do people respond to it? So all of that stuff around context I think is really important and draws in kind of different um, methodologies, as I've said, reception studies as well as um, interviews and content analysis. Um, so yeah, so just kind of I think, and and finally, I guess insisting on the importance of not dismissing certain aesthetics just because it's not obvious what they're saying, or we don't like what, what they're saying. It's still sending a message, right? And that is still important to engage with. So I think that's why I, <laughs> I really wanted to end on. Right. Right. Absolutely, and <clears throat> I completely agree. And you know, I I do have a list of like 11 more questions but I think we already have taken a lot of your time so you know I was wondering whether you could tell us more about the current projects or you know future projects that you you envision um you know just kind of looking towards the next uh months or next year yeah yeah I mean I I should say I don't know if I should say but I will say that um it's a classic position of of academics having you know finished their PhD and being stuck in temporary short-term contracts so just to put that out there that's that's the reality um so I'm still kind of looking for that more permanent contract but I am working on a number of of interesting things at the moment Uh, I am still thinking about Colombia and particularly these this kind of this this political and social shift I'm really interested in whether it's how it's affected the representation of young people and the role of art and culture as a form of sort of civic agency and political engagement. So I'd really like to explore that in more depth. Um, I have also been working on a project called Ordinary Citizenship at the University of Leeds, which was interesting because it moved away from the Latin American context, um, but was still focused on everyday life and the importance of social interactions and engagements with space as a way of, as a kind of, a a part of democracy that often gets ignored, right? Because we think political participation as being voting or volunteering or something a little bit more active, but actually there's a lot going on in everyday life. And within that, um, I'm writing a paper on the, the importance of ugly graffiti how it speaks to injustice as opposed to um, beautiful graffiti. So, uh, so and, and yeah, I think, yeah, I think, just think that there's so much potential to, to really, again, listen to people and think about the importance of young people who are so, so much represented in very contradictory and often in unhelpful ways. So really kind of understanding their perspectives on their terms and through their own modes of expression um, I think is what I'm finding most interesting and most exciting at the moment 
absolutely and i mean i i totally support that i think it's it's such a such a rich thing um right domain and area and um it can lead you to all sorts of discoveries um and you know but then there's also the risk um you know that everything is so exciting that we want to work on everything right at the same time absolutely completely <laughs> it's so hard isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know um i thank you very very much dr griffin for talking to us today and i look forward to more work and more interviews <laughs> with you in the future well thank you so much victoria it's been a really great conversation thank you